Thanks to you at home for joining us tonight. Um, and look, by now you've seen this. You know, you can now get this on a shirt. You can get it on a poster. Uh, you can get it on a mug. You can get it on a beer koozie if that's what you want. Donald Trump's presidential campaign is all in fundraising off of his arrest in Fulton County, Georgia, with brand new, yep, mugshot merch. Each item features the president's new slogan, Never Surrender, underneath a picture of the 45th president literally surrendering to authorities. You cannot make this up. We are just 24 hours out from that historic image being released to the public for the first time. But a lot has happened in those 24 hours. As of this morning, all 19 co-defendants in the Georgia case have surrendered to authorities in Fulton County. 18 of those 19 co-defendants have been released awaiting trial. Uh, One is still in jail. Harrison Floyd was one of the people allegedly involved in the plot to intimidate poll worker Ruby Freeman when he turned himself in yesterday. Uh, Mr. Floyd was denied bond because of a prior charge. And it turns out that earlier this year, uh, Harrison Floyd allegedly attacked an FBI agent who was trying to serve him a grand jury subpoena in Jack Smith's federal elections investigation. Well, today, Mr. Floyd appeared remotely in a Georgia courtroom where he told a judge that he was not a flight risk, arguing that he flew in from out of state to turn himself in before Donald Trump did. But the judge said that it would be up to another judge to set conditions for his release. Harrison Floyd also told the court today that he cannot afford to pay for a lawyer. Because you do not qualify for a public defender, you have the right to retain a lawyer of your choice. Okay? I've spoken with several different um, attorneys for flying out here. Um, the cost is typically between $40,000 to $100,000 just to retain a lawyer for these charges. And then they charge an hourly that I cannot afford. I'm not going to put my family in that kind of debt. And today, lawyers for another of Trump's co-defendants, former Trump attorney and conspiracy theorist Sidney Powell, filed a motion for a speedy trial. She effectively asked the court to make her trial happen sooner rather than later. And in fact, she's actually the second co-defendant in this case to ask for a speedy trial after Trump lawyer Kenneth Cheesebro. And that would appear to put those two co-defendants in direct odds with other ones, including Trump himself, who appears to be trying to delay this trial and others as long as possible. Now, one of those co-defendants pushing for delay is Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. On Monday, though, attorneys for Meadows will argue in federal court in Atlanta that his case should be heard there instead of a Georgia state court. Monday will be a busy day for Trump-related court cases, as there will also be a pretrial hearing in special counsel Jack Smith's federal case against Trump for trying to overturn the election. And during that hearing, we expect the judge, uh, Tanya Chutkin, to officially set a date for that trial, which means that at this moment, we may be less than 72 hours away from knowing when Donald Trump will finally stand trial and whether or not it will happen before the 2024 presidential election. Today, Trump's would-be opponent in that race, President Biden, made a rare admission that he is keeping up with Trump's legal woes. Have you seen Donald Trump's mugshot yet? I, I did see it on television. What'd you think? Nice and guy. Wonderful guy. 
All right, joining us now are Melissa Redman, former prosecutor in the Fulton County District Attorney's Office and now a professor at the University of Georgia School of Law. We also have Joyce Vance, former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, Melissa, Joyce, Barb, it's great to have three of you with us starting us off tonight. Melissa, let me start with you um, and talk to me about Georgia's speedy trial law here. It's obviously now being front and center with what we've seen. What does it mean that both Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheeseborough want to move up their trial? And is there any benefit to them in doing that? Right. I think for these particular defendants, they have a lot at stake. They're both practicing attorneys. So you have to imagine that their livelihood is in limbo based on these charges. So they do have a reason to want to get them resolved as soon as possible. Um, it also means that their case will be severed from the remaining co-defendants um, who, although these two have requested a speedy trial, the judge can't force all 19 to go to trial in two months. So those cases would be severed out. Um, that also means that those cases which are severed out, severed out get kind of a sneak peek, right, at the evidence that's going to be presented in this case. Because although most of the evidence will be um, confined to the actions of these individuals, it is a RICO case. So the state still has to make out the enterprise and the conspiracy. So some of that evidence will still be Will still come in in their trial, assuming and and they may be tried together since they both filed speedies. They both have to be tried before um, the beginning of November. Um, so I would assume that they would both be tried together if possible. Uh, Joyce, Mark Meadows says that uh, his case should be moved to federal court because he was working as a federal official for Trump uh, in Georgia or on behalf of Trump in the White House in Georgia. But Fannie Willis argues that his conduct was uh, political in nature. And she points out that the Hatch Act prohibits federal officials from engaging in election activity. Uh, today, Mark Meadows' attorney fired back in a filing calling Willis's Hatch Act arguments a red herring. What do you think? So this is a very nuanced legal argument. It's important to understand that the law here is very defendant friendly. This removal statute is often used to protect federal law enforcement officers who are charged with crimes in state court based on their conduct, say, when executing a search warrant <clears throat> or making an arrest. So the law intends to protect federal officers. It's not a very good fit here, though. And federal judge Steve Jones will have the opportunity to look behind the curtain a little bit to make a determination as to whether Meadows' conduct was truly part of his job as the president's chief of staff, where Willis has the better of the argument is when she makes the point that the president doesn't play any role in individual vote counts in the states. And Meadows was far into that uh, activity, offering in one instance whether or not it might be helpful to Cobb County, whether it might not be able to speed up its vote if it had federal campaign dollars from the Trump campaign involved in that effort. So that may well be this sort of Hatch Act argument Willis is trying to make, that folks in Trump's orbit were going too far into the political arena to deserve the protection of the removal statute. Uh, Barbara, all three of the uh, indicted fake electors are trying to claim they should have their cases moved to federal court because they say uh, they were acting at the direction of the president when they met. Do those arguments have any merits to them? And could we possibly just to elaborate a little bit more on Joyce's point, could we possibly see uh, somebody like Mark Meadows's case being moved to federal court, but not 
uh, Donald Trump's or these fake electors? Yes. So the statute that allows removal to federal court requires that a person either be a, a federal officer or someone acting under their direction. And so to the extent these fake electors say that they were acting under the direction of the president, they fit that part of the statute. But that's not the only thing the statute provides. It also says that the person has to be acting within the scope of their authority. And as Joy said, the scope of the authority is governing, executing the laws of the United States. And when they are acting as campaigners, as politicians, then they are not acting within the scope of the authority. They weren't advancing any interests of the United States. They were only advancing interests of Donald Trump as a candidate. And so I think for the same reasons that Mark Meadows is going to have an uphill climb, I think these fake electors are going to have the same uphill climb. Now, it could be that if some of them prevail, that we see a split, that some of the defendants are tried in federal court and others are tried in state court. But for ease of efficiency, it may be that if a bulk of them go to federal court, then they'll all go. But I still think that's an uphill battle, especially in light of the fact that the defendant, Mark Meadows here, has the burden of persuading the judge that this case belongs in federal court. Uh, Joyce, putting uh, issues of removal to federal court aside for a moment, Trump has uh, indicated that he wants to uh, sever his case from the other 18 co-defendants. Um, and perhaps we'll see that just as a result of uh, what Melissa was saying about the speedy trial motions from people like Kenneth uh, Cheesebro and uh, Sidney Powell. Do you see him succeeding with them being able to sever his trial from the others? So this will be part of a package argument the court will have to take up. 19 defendants, a RICO charge. There are reasons of judicial economy for bringing as much of this case in one piece uh, as possible. Trump's strategy has always been a strategy of delay, and his motion to sever is part of that ongoing strategy of pushing back the moment of accountability as far as possible. So the judge will have to engage in a balance, ensuring that Trump really does have adequate time to prepare. Tonight, the district attorney advised defendants' lawyers that she would need devices that could hold two terabytes of data for their initial pull of discovery. And so that's a lot of information for defense lawyers to go through, and they are entitled to adequate time. But by the same moment, the government is entitled to try its case in a speedy fashion, and the judge will have to balance those two interests in deciding questions of severability and timing. Uh, Melissa, Trump lawyer Jenna Ellis complained recently that she is not getting any support with her uh, legal bills despite trying an online campaign. Now, today, you saw Harrison Floyd in court saying he cannot afford a lawyer. How much does the inability of a defendant to pay for a lawyer factor in to a trial? Does Donald Trump have to worry about co-defendants flipping if he is not paying for their legal funds? Be nervous that that is exactly the case because they would have an incentive to resolve their case as soon as possible. And that may mean cooperating with the state, reaching some type of either a plea deal or immunity deal in exchange for their testimony. Um, so I think it would be if uh, in Donald Trump's best interest to make sure that his co-defendants are properly represented um, to, to kind of head that off. But otherwise, I, I would think it would be a concern of his or should be. Uh, Barbara, on Monday, uh, federal judge Tanya Chutkin, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is expected to set a trial date for the federal elections case. It's obviously going to be a very important decision. Prosecution has asked for a trial date in January. Trump, 
He wants to delay this until 2026. Uh, obviously, it's not going to be, you know, almost three years out. Any predictions on what is a fair and um, speedy process? I don't know exactly what they'll choose, but I, I think there are a few things to keep in mind here. One is the volume of discovery. It's substantial, as Joyce just said. In this case, it's similar in uh, the federal case. That's something to think about. I think one of the other factors is the very crowded court calendar. Donald Trump has four pending indictments, and so any date has to kind of figure out within the calendar where these trials are going to fit in, and none of them are going to be short. Uh, the the election interference trial, I think, will probably take a couple of months to try. So that's a factor. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is the first trial date is rarely the last. And that's because of the organic nature of litigation. And so she may set a trial date for spring of 2024 or something along those lines. But, you know, things happen. Uh, motions get filed. Uh, defendants get sick. Um, def defendants fire their lawyers. And so oftentimes the first trial date is not the last one because of the reality of litigation that causes a judge to find what's called excludable delay and set a new trial date. So just because we get uh, a trial date in early 2024 on Monday doesn't mean that's the one that's really going to stick. Yeah, needless to say, Monday will be a busy day on many fronts. Barbara McQuay, Joyce fans, Melissa Redmond, thank you so much uh, to the three of you for making uh, time for us tonight. Greatly appreciate it, as always. And as I mentioned, we have a lot to get to tonight, like the eerie similarities between some of the alleged criminal conduct in Georgia and this, the Nixon-directed burglary at the Watergate Hotel. Plus, congressional Republicans like House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan may not be on retainer for Donald Trump, but boy, they appear to be doing what they can to help him in court. We're going to explain next. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. So yesterday, Donald Trump got his wish, a fourth criminal arrest. But as Trump basks in the attention from his latest legal drama, House Republicans are doing whatever they can to save him. Hours before Trump surrendered to authorities in Atlanta, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan opened an investigation of Fulton County Prosecutor Fonnie Willis. In a letter to Willis, Jordan accused her of carrying out a politically motivated prosecution of Donald Trump, questioned whether she collaborated with the special counsel's office, Jack Smith, and demanded that Willis turn over all documents and communications between her office and federal officials, including anything related to the use of federal funds. Now, this is a tactic Republicans, specifically Jim Jordan here, have used time and time again. It's not just him. 
Earlier this week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said Republicans might launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden if his administration doesn't hand over documents Republicans have requested in their never ending probe of the Biden crime family. Now, according to McCarthy, that could happen in September when Congress returns from Congress. Joining us now is Congressman Eric Swalwell from the great state of California. Congressman Swalwell, it is great to see you as always. Thank you uh, for making time for us. So I got to ask you about your House colleagues. They have, they're doing it again, basically. They've launched an investigation, uh, this time into Fulton County Prosecutor Fonnie Willis. Uh, and I got to say, it, it resembles the one they opened into Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg after uh, Trump was indicted in the hush money case here in New York City. What do you make of this investigate the investigators tactic from your colleagues? MAGA Republicans are jury tampering. Uh, that's what this is. Uh, they know that the goods uh, have been acquired in the investigation that Fannie Willis has put together. And Donald Trump deserves equal protection under the law. Uh, but uh, the justice system deserves better than Republicans interfering in the judicial process. And that's exactly uh, what these guys are doing. And by the way, Eamon, uh, this, this would be one thing if we didn't have other priorities in Washington, D.C., like funding the government in the next couple of weeks, taking care of our troops, making sure benefits like Social Security and IRS refunds go out to people, all which could be put in limbo if they shut down the government. And it seems this summer, the only thing they want to talk about is what they can do to defend Donald Trump in the myriad of cases uh, that are stacking up against him. And you also have uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I mean, you just listed all these things that are on his plate, but he's saying the chamber could start an impeachment inquiry against Biden come September. How do you expect that to play out over the coming weeks if those proceedings start? I mean, th this is a guy who seems to be very distracted from the priorities of the American people and focusing on this. But how do you think this would even play out in the chamber? They don't even know who they want to impeach. Uh, this Congress started with threats of impeaching Secretary Mayorkas, and then it was FBI Director Christopher Wray, and then Merrick Garland, uh, and now Joe Biden. And, and by the way, Eamon, one day he's sleepy Joe, the next day he's corrupt Joe. I know people who are sleepy. I know people who are corrupt. I don't know anyone who is both. These guys just know that they are reflexively anti-anything Biden's doing, whether it's for the economy, whether it's for global security over in Ukraine. And so it shows in the clownish way uh, that they're behaving. Again, this would be funny and entertaining if there wasn't so much at stake for the people that we all represent. Let's talk about something a little bit more serious. As you mentioned, you know, the first House Republican, the first thing House Republicans have to do when they return from recess is basically to put all their attention in funding the government to avert, uh, avoid or avert a government shutdown. Um, that doesn't look, at least right now, with the way the Freedom Caucus is behaving, to be very promising. They're holding the stopgap bill hostage. Uh, so, as you mentioned, money for things like disaster relief and, and elsewhere could be held up until their political agenda uh, is addressed. What, what do you say to that? That's right. Storms are pounding the southeast. Wildfires uh, are hitting us across the country. Of course, uh, we saw what happened in Maui. Communities need, you know, government support that taxpayers have all paid into. That will be suspended. That'll be cut off if Republicans shut down the government. Democrats will continue to be on the side of competence and community. And we will frame that, especially as we go into the next election, that Republicans continuously are on the side of chaos. So we'll be ready to fund the government. That's like our basic duty uh, to take care of the troops, take care of public safety, to take care of the health and education of the American people. Republicans, again, they are just there to be the largest law firm in Washington, D.C., working every day on behalf of just one client, 
Donald Trump. And speaking of two days before surrendering in Fulton County, uh, Trump attended a fundraiser for January 6th defendants at his uh, Bedminster Golf Club. And he did a similar fundraiser in June. How do you read his willingness to support rioters as he argues in legal filings that he did nothing wrong? Yeah, they were for backing the blue until the blue stopped the coup, right? So now they back the coup. Uh, again, they're just reflexively uh, anything uh, that hurts Trump, uh, they are against. So the FBI raids Donald Trump's property because he stole national security secrets. Okay, now we have to defund the FBI. That's just how these guys work. It's not a core set of principles, but it's destructive to law and order in our communities. Uh, when they, they want to take a wrecking ball to it, just again, to defend uh, one person. And so the best thing we can do as Democrats, as I said, going into this election is to just show competence. And we will bring on board reasonable Republicans, independents, and other Democrats who may not be inspired to show up. If we show that we're just going to take care of the American people, do our core duties, and contrast that with the chaos that these guys bring every single day. It's amazing how far uh, Republicans continue to lower the bar on, uh, on the expectations of the American people. Uh, Congressman Eric Swalwell, it's always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Same here, Thank you. All right. Coming up this hour, the enduring grip of the man not in the room at the Republican primary debate this week. Despite the attacks you may have heard, some of the 2024 hopefuls lob at the GOP frontrunner. But first, an ex-Watergate lawyer joins us to break down some of the parallels between that era and the Georgia indictment against Trump and his alleged co-conspirators. Stay with us. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. So when former President Trump voluntarily surrendered last night at the Fulton County Jail, it was a wall-to-wall televised spectacle. His motorcade was followed uh, like it was during O.J. Simpson's white Ford Bronco chase. But when the first of Trump's co-defendants voluntarily surrendered this week, it was a very different story. There was almost no press attention at all. In fact, most people probably don't even know who this person is. And the first person to surrender this week was this guy, Scott Hall. And I know what you're thinking. Who in the world is Scott Hall? Well, he is an Atlanta area bail bondsman, and he is one of the three individuals charged as part of this indictment for their role in allegedly breaching the voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia. Of course, they were part of the group of Trump supporters who, the day after the January 6th attack on our Capitol, allegedly broke into voting machines in Coffee County looking for what they thought would be smoking gun evidence of voter fraud. 
But for a couple of reasons, that whole plot has always felt a little goofy to anyone who actually looks at it in closer detail. Number one, Trump actually won Coffee County by nearly 70 percent of the vote. Number two, they did all of their alleged election equipment breaching literally in front of a security camera. It wasn't exactly the most effective break in in American history. So why does this matter? Well, Fulton County DA Fannie Willis lays all of that out in her indictment. First off, the tech company that this group used to scan these voting machines was hired by Trump lawyer Sidney Powell. She was allegedly instrumental in orchestrating this plot. And second off, just days before they allegedly breached the voting equipment in Coffee County, D.A. Willis writes that Scott Hall and Trump's Justice Department lawyer, Jeffrey Clark, spoke on the phone for 63 minutes. A few days before that call, Clark had tried to get the acting attorney general to sign a letter claiming the Department of Justice had found evidence of fraud that may have impacted the election results, particularly in Georgia. When that attorney general wouldn't sign it, Trump reportedly considered firing him and appointing Jeffrey Clark to be attorney general so that he would do it instead. Now, in the midst of all of that, Jeffrey Clark allegedly spent more than an hour on the phone with this random bail bondsman in Georgia that no one had ever heard of. So as much as the Coffee County breach was a failure, it appears to have been a failure that was coordinated at the highest levels of the White House. And that, my friends, has echoes of another famously failed break in from our nation's history. The burglars broke through a fire escape door that led to the committee's offices. One of the suspects, James McCord, operates his own security company in Washington. He was doing work for the Republican National Committee and the committee to re-elect President Nixon. No one has proved that the Republicans are behind the break-in, but tomorrow the Democrats are expected to file some sort of legal action against the GOP anyway. Now, it is easy to forget how poorly run the Watergate break-in was. The tape they used to cover locks... Uh, So doors wouldn't shut behind them, led the building security straight to them. And they had turned down the volume on their walkie talkies to be sneakier. But that meant they didn't actually hear when their lookout was warning them that the cops were actually coming. And it turned out the whole thing wouldn't have mattered, even if it worked, because Nixon won that year's election in a landslide anyway. When the House Judiciary Committee investigated this break in, they actually ended up being able to prove that these lousy criminals were working at the direction of the U.S. Attorney General and ultimately Richard Nixon himself. Proving that chain of command from an ill-conceived and poorly executed break in to the president himself is what finally got Nixon to resign. And one of the attorneys behind that House Judiciary investigation is going to join me live next. There is a part of the Watergate scandal that history has largely forgotten. Nine months before they broke into the Watergate Hotel, uh, the three so-called White House plumbers got their start with a different break-in. White House aide Gordon Liddy was sent to Los Angeles to spy on a psychiatrist's office. And to give you a sense of how secretive it was, Liddy wore a wig, carried a fake ID, and had special shoes that made it look like he had a limp. And the plumber's target was the psychiatrist of the man who had leaked The Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, Gordon Liddy, and the rest of the White House plumbers hired CI-connected Cuban nationals to physically break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's filing cabinet with a crowbar. They were trying to find evidence that Ellsberg was mentally unstable to 
use against him and stop his leaking. And that's why they were called the White House plumbers. And in 2007, one of them explained in The New York Times why he did what he did in that first break-in. Quote, at no time did I or anyone else there question whether the operation was necessary, legal or moral. The premise of our action was the strongly held view with certain uh, precincts of the White House that the president and those functioning on his behalf could carry out illegal acts with impunity if they were convinced that the nation's security demanded it. Now, stop here for a second and think if that logic rings a bell, it might be because it is so strongly echoing the logic of the three individuals indicted in Georgia for their alleged breaching of voting systems in Coffee County. They thought they were helping the president defend democracy. Joining us now is Michael Conway, who was one of the House Judiciary Committee's uh, lawyer during their investigation into Watergate. And he just wrote an op-ed on MSNBC.com about how the Coffee County defendants brought Watergate energy to Georgia. Michael, thank you so much for being with us tonight. So fascinating piece that you wrote. I think a lot of people who certainly don't know the history of Watergate in its entirety are going to benefit from this conversation. But talk to me more about the fact that um, Coffee County officials didn't try to conceal their activities and that the idea they might have thought they were doing the right thing by helping uh, the then president. Well, absolutely. It was very blatant. The security cameras, as you pointed out, showed them being escorted uh, right into the voting machine area that's secure from the public. And it showed them actually tampering with the machines. Well, one of the uh, three has uh, said in an audio recording that was uh, discovered in a civil lawsuit that uh, they imaged the computers of all the voting equipment. They scanned all the ballots and they were very blatant about what they were doing. And they purport to contend that they had, quote, permission, close quote, to uh, do this. But of course, they didn't. It's against the law. And the only person who could give them that access would have been the secretary of state in Georgia. And he definitely didn't do that. He investigated them when that recording became public. Um, I, I, you know, th there's an interesting dynamic here that runs parallel to Watergate and that Trump has hinted at a willingness to pardon January 6 rioters and others who supported his election denialism. It's become a popular uh, phrase of his at campaign rallies and speeches. Does that attitude uh, from the former president ring any bells for you? <laughs> well, it, the, the cathedral bells are going off. Uh, <laughs> back in Watergate, uh, in the Oval Office, in recordings that Nixon never believed would be made public, he talked about offering clemency to the Watergate burglars. There are so many different aspects that have parallels between Watergate and what President Trump is alleged to have done uh, in these four indictments. Uh, for example, the president is paying of the legal fees of many of his co-defendants and potential witnesses. In Watergate, uh, more than $300,000 was raised by the White House and paid to Howard Hunt, distributed partly to his lawyer, partly to the other defendants, so that they would stay in line, keep quiet. Uh, that echoes 50 years later. You write in your uh, latest opinion piece uh, for MSNBC.com, quote, just as the rule of law punished the guilty almost five decades ago, the prosecutions of those who broke the law to do Trump's bidding must succeed in order to preserve our democracy. What would that mean have... for? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
No, absolutely true. You know, in a way, we could look at these kind of bumbling attempts of the plumbers in uh, trying to burglarize the Ellsberg psychiatrist's office or the Coffee County uh, officials who tampered with the machines. But the fact that they failed uh, doesn't mean that it wasn't a serious and, and consequential crime, because in both cases, it was really an effort to uh, undermine an election. Certainly in Watergate, it was when they were uh, trying to record the Democratic National Committee office uh, conversations. And it certainly is here where they're trying to uh, tamper with voting machine equipment. In Watergate, the three uh, plumbers uh, all were convicted of uh, violating the civil rights of uh, the psychiatrist. And, and of course, Hunt and Liddy, who oversaw it, were then later convicted in, in Watergate. But what was for the burglary, but what was important uh, is that trying to hide the initial criminal action uh, really led a lot to the cover-up. And uh, there's a cover-up here with uh, the Trump's efforts in overturning the 2020 election. No, and you make a very important point. I'm glad you did that. We should not be uh, we should not lose sight of the of the smaller parts of this crime, alleged crime, and not lose sight of the big picture of what was attempted here. And that really is what I kind of wanted to close this conversation out with you, which is the big picture of what was attempted here, this attempt to undermine our democracy and overturn an election legally. Um, and I think back to when Nixon said in an interview with David Frost, famously, when the president does it, that means it is not illegal. Uh, would you say that sentiment is still pervasive in our political culture and certainly with somebody like Donald Trump? Absolutely. It's permeating many of the defenses. Uh, you look at Mark Meadows, who says his case should be removed to federal court because he was acting at the president's bidding. And so many of the people who did these things believed the election lie, or promulgated it with Trump, and said they were acting on the president's behalf. But a little lesson from Watergate. The chief of staff of President Nixon went to prison. His, his former attorney general went to prison. The burglars went to prison. Many others in the Nixon administration went to prison. The rule of law applied then, and hopefully it's going to apply now. Yeah, certainly so for the sake of our democracy and for uh, our justice system. Michael Conway, it's always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Greatly appreciate it. Th thank you. Still ahead, Donald Trump's former White House aides are so familiar with this pose that they coined a meme for it years ago. What is it and what it might mean? Next. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Wow. That was one of the more memorable moments of Wednesday's Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee. And the man they were all talking about, of course, current GOP frontrunner Donald Trump was not even in the room. He chose to skip the debate, perhaps because he had other things to worry about, like rehearsing for his pre-scheduled primetime debut at Georgia's Fulton County Jail on Thursday night. Even just the anticipation of his televised surrender in Atlanta sucked a lot of the oxygen out of that debate room on Wednesday. This was his fourth arrest, this time for his efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential elections. But it is the only time he has taken a mugshot, which he delivered his signature skull. Scott, 
In a new piece for The New Yorker, Susan Glasser calls it the harsh glare of justice. Quote, the trademark Trump glower is one of his cultivated. He is is one that he has cultivated for years Uh, in the White House. His aides called it simply the stare. And it might be a display of confidence from a man whose poll numbers seem to rise with each indictment and the willingness of his Republican opponents to agree to support him. Conviction or not only reinforces that confidence for him. Glasser writes, quote, there should be little doubt that most of those who now claim to have moved on from Trump, such as Haley and Pence, will nonetheless raise their hands and vote for him again if they have to. For Republicans, for now, there is once again only Team Trump. Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker, joins me along with Brian Stelter, special correspondent for Vanity Fair. Uh, Thanks to the both of you for being here. Susan, uh, I'll start with you. Um, What do you make of the spectacle of Trump at the Fulton County Jail, along with this kind of dichotomy of Republican candidates uh, making a show of voicing their support for the quadruply indicted frontrunner? Well, you know, you're right that uh, the trademark glower and glare is something that we absolutely could have expected and, in fact, did expect from the Trump mugshot. Uh, You know, I was on a tight deadline for The New Yorker. It's not known for its quick turnarounds. Right. So, uh, you know, I pre-wrote anticipating that uh, he would be glaring at us. And actually, I would say the only surprise, right, is that he looks a little bit even more sinister than I cooked up. But, you know, it's when we were working on our book, The Divider about Trump in the White House, one of the things I found really interesting is the extent to which he is very calculated. This is not the spontaneous work of a showman. It's the calculated, cultivated persona that he wants. He doesn't believe in smiling. There are very few photo ops. You'll find him in which he's doing that. Uh, He thinks that, you know, he wants to project this image of strength, of being a tough guy, a boss, a strong man. And he'd rather really be scowling at you than smiling at you in a situation like this. So the Trump playbook is the Trump playbook. But what's so remarkable, and the reason we're talking about him, of course, is because the Republican Party has decided to continue to embrace him. And I'm glad you showed that moment from the the debate, because I know people are talking about, oh, well, they had an interesting policy back and forth. But the truth is, Everything that was really important was contained in that moment when six of those eight candidates said they would vote again for a guy who they're supposedly running against, even if he was a convicted felon. Mm. Brian, your thoughts on this? I mean, the moment of uh, the the picture, the mugshot juxtaposed with the reality that the Republicans are still behind this guy, even if he is convicted. That was uh, his mugshot was his I am your retribution face. That's what he told the CPAC audience in March. I'm your retribution. That's what he's promising in a second term. And that's what the image was all about. He's somehow tried to celebrate this image. And his his most cheerful propagandists on conservative media are claiming that he looks strong when, in fact, this is the weakest possible image. But, you know, there's so many lies happening this week around Trump. You think about his interview with Tucker Carlson, which he claimed was bigger than the Super Bowl. You know, we heard the big lie in 2020. This is the new little lie Trump's coming out with, claiming that he's more popular than the Fox debate, claiming he's more popular than the Super Bowl or Oprah Winfrey. It's a joke, but it's a joke that's actually self-defeating because he's telling his MAGA base that he's more popular than he actually is. And at the end of the day, there's going to be a push comes to shove moment where that's proven not to be true, where actually he was not more popular than the debate. He can claim it for a while, but the truth will eventually someday rear its head and he will suffer as a result. We'll talk a little bit about uh, about that Twitter and the 
viewership in just a moment. But Susan, I want to point something out that you uh, wrote and Trump's former you you pointed out that Trump's former campaign manager, Bill Stipien, uh, coined this term team normal to describe those who tried and failed to convince Trump that he had really lost the uh, election. Mm. Uh, And to Brian's point here about the reality kind of setting in at some point, do you think that term uh, still carries any weight with uh, team Trump or team normal? Well, I think one of the points I was trying to make is that, uh, unfortunately, even what passes for Team Normal and the remains of the Republican establishment, characters like Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, uh, you know, they they made their successes in the pre-Trump Republican Party. And yet, like Mike Pence, the former vice president, fatally compromised in the end. They made a deal with the devil. They knew that it was wrong. Uh, the lure of power and access and being inside, they chose to be his vice president, his UN ambassador, his confidant and friend in the case of Chris Christie. All of them got singed in different ways by that. Uh, you know, frankly, both Mike Pence and Chris Christie could arguably say that uh, they were, you know, almost killed by Donald Trump. Uh, you know, Mike Pence uh, by the, the pro-Trump mob on January 6th. Chris Christie literally contracted COVID because Trump lied about it as Chris was prepping him for the 2020 debate. And I think that was the end of their friendship. But the point is, these folks, even at the risk of their own lives, have found it so difficult to swear off Donald Trump. There is no team normal. Without the support of team normal, Donald Trump would not have been able overall to command uh, his power over the Republican Party. It's not Hmm. just the most extreme MAGA people. Let me ask you about Twitter because you brought that up. Or I, I got to stop saying Twitter. I'm still used to Twitter. But it's it's like, always going to so, be Twitter to me. Yeah, I was going to say, right. Formerly yeah. known as Twitter. X, um, Y or Z. Give me a break. Uh, you know, his team, Trump's team said that, you know, his counter programming uh, interview with Tucker Carlson drew hundreds of millions of views. A lot of people have been pointing out that it's gotten that 200 million view count. People who who follow and know how this business works knows that that is not a real number. It's but not. It, it's so misleading. The headline actually is that the debate, the GOP debate, was actually a, a more popular event than many TV analysts expected. Right. I was talking to executives of Fox News who expected five, six million viewers. They actually had double the number. That means there's a lot of interest in the, maybe not the Mike Pence's, Nasa Hutchinson's, but in some of the other candidates, in the Nikki Haley's, in the Ron DeSantis's. There is interest in these Trump rivals. That's actually really notable, I think. And that's important heading into the general election. You know, I remember a couple weeks ago, there's an NBC reporter at the Iowa State Fair interviewing a Trump voter who said, the indictment only make me love Trump more. He said, quote, whoever the Democrats hate is who I like. There's always a lot of interest in those folks, right? The Trump loyalists, no matter what. And there's a lot of interest in the Trump opponents. I'm, I think we should focus more on the people in between, right. the people in the Republican Party who are persuadable. There might be more than we think. And let's look at these polls in the next few days coming out of this debate. The polls post-debate might show us that there are a little, there's a little bit less energy around Trump and a little bit more around his rivals. Yeah, a lot of lessons learned from 2016. Have to make sure that we do not make those mistakes again, both in the media right. and the uh, politics at large. Brian Stelter, Susan Glasser, thank you so much to the both of you. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks. As always. Uh, That is our show for tonight. You can catch me again Saturday at 8 p.m., Sunday at 9 Eastern on MSNBC. 